Amen. This passage, and I invite you as usual to read it several times through, falls into three parts. It's the end of 11 is the first part, whereas this challenge to renew the kingship, renew the kingship. The second part is the first half, first 11 verses of chapter 12, which is really like a court scene where Samuel is being tried and so is the Lord to evaluate how have we behaved and the verdict is quite clear. Both Samuel and the Lord have been faithful. They haven't broken the covenant that they had with Israel and therefore the third part is the verdict against Israel that they have made a bad decision. They went off course and now what should they do? And that holds truth for us. I think the key verse of this whole section, this part of God's word, is verse 20. Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil, but do not turn away from the Lord. Serve him with all your heart. Where you have stumbled, where you have fallen, where you have gotten off course, admit it. You have done this evil, but now don't wallow in it. Bring yourself back under his rulership, his lordship, and follow him with all of your heart. Let's work our way through the passage, see what we learn on the way. Chapter 11, verse 12, we have an interesting comment that while Saul is the newly anointed and elected king, the people don't go to him. They go to Samuel. It's interesting. It's almost like Saul is the king in name only but something is not right with his kingship. He's just led the people in a magnificent victory but the people said to Samuel, where are those people who said, who is this king? He's not going to rule over us, he's no good. Chapter 10, verse 25, 27. Where are those people? Bring them out. It is a great evil to rebel against God's appointed king. A great evil. Their perception is correct. People who rebel against those whom God has put in charge are to be dealt with. Jesus tells a parable to that end. Uh, Luke chapter 19 about a king who went off to a, a far country and when he came back he sent sons back and they got killed and we don't want that man to rule over us. So when he returned he said bring them out here and he executes them. We are to be people under authority and in submission to those whom God places over us and to follow God's ways regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. These people, I think, are correct. They're not vindictive. I think they're seeing the situation as it should have been seen. But they don't find justice. They don't find vengeance. It's interesting. Verse 13 is Saul replying. He says, no one will be killed today. I wonder what he means by today. Nobody will be killed today. It'll come, but not today. Is that what he means? Or does he mean, far more graciously, no one will be killed today. For today God has delivered us. God has done a great victory and we need to focus on glorifying him, not on wreaking our own vengeance. It's not going to happen. Is that what he meant? More than likely. Samuel then says, realises, perceives as a prophet only a prophet could do with God giving him insight. Samuel says to the people, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingship. Let's go to this significant place in Israel's history and there let's 
renew the kingship. What does he mean, renew? To renew something implies that it has deteriorated. Uh, It's to renew the kingship, not to complete it, not to commence it, but to renew it. Does he mean Saul's kingship? That some time had lapsed between you know, Saul getting elected and between that and the battle and somehow the attitude of Israel to their new king was deteriorating and that needed to be renewed? Well, probably that's what the people thought. But I think in Samuel's mind, there is not simply an attitude of we need to renew the kingship in the minds of the people so that they rightly acknowledge God as their king and that this king, Saul, is to live as a king under God's instructions. There are specific guidelines on God's king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I think that's what Samuel has in mind. When he says, let's renew the kingship, he's saying, let's renew God as king. So the people go, but they understand, of course, it just to be Saul. And so all of the people, verse 15, all of the people, that include those who were previously disgruntled, those who were, this guy's not going to be any good. All of the people now acknowledge, establish, it says, made Saul as king in the Lord's presence. They offered peace offerings, which is re-establishing a relationship between them and God, worshipping him. And Saul and all Israel celebrated, rejoiced greatly. So Saul definitely has been officially installed by all of the people, now recognised widely. But I think Samuel has this other agenda. He wants the kingship renewed. He certainly wants Israel to hold the king accountable, to modify his rule so that he is living under God's instructions. If you go back to chapter 10... Verse 25, it says, Then Samuel talked to the people about how the kingship would work. He wrote it all down on a scroll and he set it before the Lord. This is how a king in Israel must work. Back in chapter 8, when they first asked for this king, it was the Lord through Samuel who told them, This is a bad idea. You're rejecting God as king and you're going for a tall, good-looking, impressive one, you know, one out of central casting or something. Verse 11 of chapter 8. Here are the policies of the king who will rule over you. He will take. He will take your son. Conscript them into his army. He will take your daughters. He'll put them in his kitchen for his bakery. He'll take your oxen. He'll take your land. He'll take your crops. He'll take your best servants, male and female, and he'll put them in his palace. He will take, he will take, he will take. And then you will become like slaves and you will cry out to God. Chapter 8. And God will not hear you. That's what Samuel warned them of. That's what you're asking for, a king. A king like the nations have. A king who will take. So Samuel is very keen to get God's people back on track. Let's renew the kingship. Let's get this clear. That this is how this king, Saul, will live and rule under our king, Yahweh, the Lord. Jesus addressed a similar issue over in Mark chapter 10. Same passage we read for little Abigail this morning. You'll know this passage. In Mark chapter 10, 
um, James and John had come to Jesus privately. They're on the way to Jerusalem and they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said, Sure. No, he didn't. He said, Tell me exactly what you want. They said, Permit one of us to sit at your right hand and the other one sit at your left hand in your kingdom, in your glory. Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking for. And then he goes on to correct it. Um, you know that those who are recognised as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions use their authority over them. It is not this way among you. Instead, of whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give, not take to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how it is in God's kingdom. God is king. And God certainly puts in place designated leaders and rulers, kings if you like, prophets, priests in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in his church. It's the same system. It's the same idea. God is king. And he places in his church leaders, elders, pastors, deacons, ministry leaders, leaders who are servants, his servant and servants to the people. That's what Samuel is wanting to renew in the minds of these people as he brings them to Gilgal. How were they to do it? Well, as we read through the passage, you'll find that they do it by repentance. He eventually will get them to that point where they will publicly acknowledge what we did was wrong. We made a big mistake. What we did was evil. It was selfish. It was ill-considered. And we have disobeyed God we can do the same thing. We can also stumble, fall, make bad decisions, get off course, failure to acknowledge God's leadership in our life as we decide or do certain things that we ought not. We, like Israel, need to do exactly the same. Change our mind about the situation. Acknowledge and admit this is wrong. This is not right. Decide to submit to God again and ask to be forgiven and then commit yourself to obeying him to renew your allegiance to him as king. Well, back to chapter 12. Israel has entered into a covenant with God <clears throat> and covenants by their very nature are binding relationships. Samuel is going to remind them of this covenant. Covenants have stipulations. You will do this with associated blessings and I will give you this. There are obligations and blessings promises. And words are used like sovereign, king, master, lord and the people on this side of the covenant are servants, slaves, those in submission to the citizens, the subjects. So we too as followers of the Lord Jesus today, Christians are under a new covenant. There are still covenant obligations and there are covenant blessings. And the same language is used. He is the lord, we are servants. He is the master. We are the slaves. And the Lord Jesus reminds us that we can't serve two masters. You can't serve him and anyone else. can't do it. You can serve others under him because you are serving him, but you can't put an alternative in place, including yourself. Israel was to be such a theocracy, a group of people who lived under God's kingship, under God's rule, 
where he appointed the leaders and they lived in obedience to him. Now they have their king and Samuel has an issue and he begins by saying, verse 1, I have done everything you requested. I have heard you. On whatever you have said, I have heard and I have complied. I've served you. I've given you a king. And look at verse 2. This is interesting. Do you remember where his sons were? His sons he had appointed to be judges in Israel, but they weren't good sons, they were bad sons. They didn't follow in the ways of the Lord like he did. And so he had moved them to Beersheba, way down south, that tells us, back in chapter 8. But now look, Samuel's heard them. They have complained about his sons, that they are priests or judges and they are not obedient. What does he do? Verse 2. Now look, this king is before you. As for me, I am old and grey, though my sons are here with you. His sons are now with him. I have walked before you from the time of my youth until the present day. I heard you. I listened to you. You said there was something wrong, so I listened to you. I fired them. They are no longer judges. They're now here. Samuel would not have been a popular man in his family. His daughters-in-law would have been upset with him, I would imagine. His sons, in their misappropriate behaviour, were putting out their hand and taking bribes. They were gilding the lily a fair bit. They were rich. And Samuel put a stop to it. His own sons stopped it. You can imagine the daughters-in-law being a little bit upset. You could imagine even maybe wifey was being a little bit upset. Christmas wasn't going to have as many presents this year because of Samuel. Samuel is a man, as you read through this examination, is a man who lives with transparent openness before the people and he is affirmed as being a man of integrity. My sons are here with you. How did he do this? How did Samuel live his life like this before these people? He asked them point blank, bring a charge against me. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? He's using those same words. To whom have I put out my hand for a bribe? Who have I closed my eyes to so that I might overlook a matter to your advantage? And the people unitedly, verse 4 say, you haven't wronged us or oppressed us, you haven't taken anything from us, you have served us, you have been a man of integrity all your life. Which by implication means you had no right to make the requests that you made. When you said we want a king, why? You had been served faithfully by me and as he's going to show, you had been served faithfully by God. Where did this desire for a king come from? Out of their own sinful hearts. They had gotten off course. They had somehow given in to their own self-view. Before I go to that, how did Samuel manage to stay the course? What's his secret? Well, the passage doesn't say it, but my answer is self-leadership. He governed himself. He didn't have anybody in authority over him except the Lord. He governed himself. He had his own personal code of conduct. He made a decision. He committed to obeying God and keeping his conscience clear. He lived before a heavenly king. There's a challenge for us. How well do we lead ourselves? Is there something not right in our life? 
if we were to ask the people, examine my life, open the records, roll the tapes, talk to people, whom have I wronged, whom have I oppressed? If I have done something like that, he says, I'll fix it up, I'll return it to you. He certainly wasn't perfect, but he certainly did have integrity. So is there something not right in your life? Then put it right. Don't delay, because there is an enemy around who will seek to exploit it. The Bible warns us, be sure your sin will find you out. So Israel's affirmation of his um, sound leadership means that there is no legitimate grounds for their request for a king. They are beginning to get the argument. Verses 6 to 12, he then reviews the history of God's involvement with his people. What's the evidence of how God has dealt with you? And you read verses 8, 9, 10 and 11 and you'll see that Israel stumbled, made a mistake. God disciplined them. They came to their senses and they came back to God and they said, God, forgive us. And he did. He gave them a deliverer and reinstated them in their relationship. After a period of time, they forget about God. They just get busy with life. They just get distracted and they make a bad decision. They sin again. So God disciplines them and they repent and they come back to God, please forgive us. And he does. And he gives them a leader whom they follow and there is peace. And they forget about God and they sin. It's a pattern. And verse 11, when you read it, there were so many deliverers that God had sent these people. There is this spin cycle, if you like, of Israel's sin going on. There is a pattern to their behaviour. Look at your own life. Do you have a pattern of sinful behaviour? Do you have a pattern like that where you're going okay but then you stumble, sin, and God disciplines and then you come back to him and you forgive and you follow for a while and then you stumble again? And Is there a pattern? Look back over the last five years, ten years of your life. If there is a pattern, then ask the question, what is knocking me off course? Is there something that repeats itself, reoccurs in my life. If you can identify it, then it's to take steps to deal with that issue, not simply to keep being knocked over by it. And it comes through all different stages and circumstances of life, doesn't it? I wrote out a list. When is it most likely that the evil one may tempt us when we may get knocked off course? You see, the reality is our... Um, our decision button, our choice mechanism has a default setting to self. Even though we've become followers of the Lord Jesus, it has to be a daily experience, a weekly gathering, confessing he is Lord, reorientating our life, getting into his word and submitting to it. But Jesus, in fact, says, uh, if you're going to follow me, then take, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and it's wake up in the morning Jesus you are Lord I want to walk with you before you today but our default setting is self and so what happens to us automatically when we are not consciously intentionally focusing on the Lord is that we'll get knocked off we'll focus on self it can happen and here's an incredible list long list it can happen when you're tired it can happen when you're busy, when you're hungry, when you're annoyed with somebody, when you're hurt by somebody, when you're disappointed, depressed, attacked, threatened, misunderstood, lonely, anxious, criticised, when you've been accused, when you've been gossiped about, when you've been lied about, when there's a sudden crisis in your life, 
You can have spiritual amnesia and you forget that God is king and you start to make decisions to fix it up and do it yourself. It can happen in all those circumstances. It can happen, your button can switch to a self-focus just as surely as gravity. When you're comfortable, when you're succeeding, when you're joyful, when you're excited, when you're being promoted, when you're being pleased, when you've been praised. In the midst of all of these circumstances, difficult circumstances, great circumstances, don't turn away from God. That's the point that Samuel's making. Often, not all the time, many of you would have heard me do it, at funerals more often than anywhere else, I use an illustration of a roller coaster, that life is like a roller coaster ride. <clears throat> has its you know fun bits up and exciting bits, it has its scary bits, it has its downtimes, it has its twists and turns, it has its sudden stops and starts, all of those things. Well, for our purposes this morning, there is a sign when you get on a roller coaster. I've only been on one in my life, and God willing, that'll only ever be one in my life. And there's a little sign that says, please remain seated at all times whilst the carriage is in motion. That's a good idea. Please remain seated at all times whilst the carriage is in motion. You're on a roller coaster ride and God is the roller coaster, if you like. You're in him. And through life's ups and downs, twists and turns, don't get out of the roller coaster. Don't get away from God in your life. Stay focused on him. If you were to get out of the roller coaster, the physical one, because you're about, what, 20 metres up in the air or whatever it is, maybe higher. If you get out, it's going to hurt. Yeah, well, you turn away from God, you get out of being and walking with God, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Does that mean we'll never get hurt if we stay with God? No, doesn't mean that at all. But it means whether I get hurt, whether it's good times, bad times, twists, turns, ups, downs, I'm with God. I'm doing what he wants me to do. Don't turn aside from following the Lord, Samuel is saying. So Israel, verse 13, have come to a fork in the road. They're sort of starting to get it, but they haven't quite got it. So Samuel says, verse 13, okay, you have your king. God has graciously delivered this king to you. Now, verse 14, if, if you follow God, If the king and you follow God, things are going to go well. Follow the stipulations of the covenant, the obligations. There'll be blessing, there'll be protection, there'll be all those good things. Things will go well. But, verse 15, warning, but if you don't, or if the king doesn't, if you don't follow God, following his word, his laws, his his stipulations, then it won't go well with you. And in fact, you will experience the hand of the Lord against you the hand of the Lord, his power against you. Now that seems clear. You know, I had a, con- excuse me, a conversation with someone, it doesn't matter who, wife, parent, child, friend, work colleague, you're having a conversation with them and you've been logical, you've been reasonable, there's no escape, you've won the argument, there are no loopholes, they're just not convinced. Ever been in a conversation like that? just can't get the others to agree with you. That's about where Samuel is at this point. He's outlined for them, I did nothing wrong, God has been consistent, you did wrong, and they're not quite getting it. 
they haven't yet come to that point of repentance, of acknowledging we did wrong. So Samuel says we need a visual aid. It's the dry season has just started, May, June. So he says to them, verse 16, so take your positions and let's see what God is going to do. Verse 17, isn't this the time of the wheat harvest? Doesn't rain, the wheat harvest. I'm going to call on the Lord so that he makes it thunder and rain. And then you will realise what a great sin you have committed before the Lord by asking for a king for yourselves. So Samuel does, verse 18. He calls on the Lord. Nothing happens. Not straight away. But eventually, I guess, the cloud covers over, sky covers over with cloud, and it says, and the Lord made it thunder and rain that day. Like snow at Christmas time in Cairns. Unusual. And then all of the people realised we did wrong. Now they've come to the point of repentance. All the people said, verse 19, pray to the Lord your God, not our God, your God. They realised that they have turned away from God, that they didn't even dare to assume that he would still be their God, that he would take them back. Please pray to the Lord your God for us because we're your servants so that we won't die for we have added to all of our sins by asking for a king. They finally name it and call it what it is. In doing that we did wrong and we can't reverse it. We're going to live with it. There are always consequences, aren't there? And then Samuel very graciously in terms of his leadership to the people instructs them. Verse 20 he says, Don't be afraid. Well, why not? We sinned, he's angry, we're in trouble and you say don't be afraid. Well Samuel tries to direct them, okay you have sinned, you have done wrong but don't add to it by continuing to turn aside from the Lord. Don't wallow in the guilt, don't replay it over and over and over in your mind. You did wrong, admit it, forsake it and come back to God and that's done, dealt with. Don't keep returning to it. Don't keep beating yourself up about it. It's done and dusted once you have repented because God won't remind you of it once you've repented so you ought not to remind yourself. The evil one on the other hand will tell you every day. He will condemn you. God forgives us and we need to move on. That's what Samuel says. Don't turn aside he says. Verse 22 a great promise. God's not going to leave you. Why not? Because you may not keep the covenant, but he does. He gave his word. He has a purpose and he's going to stick to it. You're his people and he's going to keep you and shape you. And then verse 23, as for me, that's what he said back in verse 2, as for me, twice in this chapter he uses that phrase, this time, as for me in my senior years, he hasn't retired yet, But the leadership has certainly changed. There is now a king. What am I going to do? Well, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I commit myself to intercession. I will pray for you. I will instruct you in the way that is good and right. Verse 24, he encourages them, gives them godly counsel. Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Just look at the great things. Consider the great things God has done for you. And verse 25, he warns them. But if you continue to do evil, 
then rest assured that you and the king will be swept away. He's going to pray, he's going to teach, he's going to encourage and he's going to warn. That's what Samuel's going to do in his senior years. That's what we can do in our senior years. That's what we can do in our youth. Pray, teach God's word, encourage one another to serve God wholeheartedly and to warn one another if we turn aside. Samuel has modelled godly leadership in Israel and instructed the people in what a godly king is to be like. Someone who is obedient, someone who is an intercessor, someone who will teach what is good and right. They'll have to wait a long time for that king to come. But come he will in the person of the Lord Jesus. Now we, like Israel, are waiting for that king, a king who is obedient, who is interceding for us on high, who continues to teach us what is good and right, who counsels us and who warns us. We are waiting for him. And so our choice at this fork in the road is, will I confess he is my Lord and renew my allegiance to him? Or will I make a silly choice and turn aside, take control of my own life, let the default button go back to self and do what I think is the best thing to do? Brothers and sisters, we need to renew the kingship. We need to come to our king, the Lord Jesus, and we need to recommit ourselves to him. There could be things we need to repent of. There could be things we need to commit ourselves to doing, to obeying. But the key verse is verse 20. Don't be afraid. You may have done evil, something wrong. Yet now, do not turn away from the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus.